here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. We have a great show today. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about the president of Chad's mysterious death, how COVID is still ravaging countries uh, like India, while others have seemingly returned to normal. We'll talk uh, a quick update on the attack on Iran's nuclear facilities, some very different nuclear news out of Japan. Uh, well, there was an article we read about maybe the world's worst museum that we'll cover, some really cool news about Mars, and then European Super Leagues, Ben, I'm, I'm excited to hear your take on, uh, you know, the Americanification of European soccer. Then we're joined by Joe Biden's Deputy National Security Advisor, John Finer. We talk uh, about what it's like working in the NSC these days, uh, a lot of uh, U.S.-Russia conversation, uh, the refugees' decision, and then we talk through how Joe Biden made the decision on Afghanistan. So stick around for that. Um, two quick things, Ben. So if you... Uh, if you want to stop that wave of voter suppression laws that are just like getting passed in states yeah. across the country, I'd I like say to stop that. States. Yeah, yeah, we we got to get rid of the filibuster. We need to pass the For the People Act. Uh, so if you want to help out, go to votesaveamerica.com/slash/for-the-people. You can join that effort. You can see a whip count. You can get involved. You can call your senator. It's really important stuff. And then if you missed it, uh, Pod Save the People this week, co-host Kaya Henderson sat down with Oscar-nominated director Shaka King to talk about his new film, Judas and the Black Messiah. It's a great interview, great episode. So check out the episode. Pat yourself on the back uh, from Pod Save the People on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite app. And then, Ben, do you have some book news for us? Yeah. Um, so I, I've resisted uh beating people over the head about the book. Uh, but, you know, I'll start doing that again now as we lead up to publication on June 1st. But this is exciting news. Uh, on my, uh, I'll, I'll put this out on my Twitter account. Um, they're giving away 40 uh, galleys, 40 copies of the book uh, electronically. All you have to do is click on the form that I'll tweet, put your name in, you know, email, and uh, maybe you'll get a, a free copy of the book. And I have to imagine, I don't know how many people sign up for these sweepstakes, but you know, you world those out there will have a good shot at, at this thing <laughs> unless the, sign up. the book is swamped. Uh, and so you sign up, try to get a free copy, read it. If you like it, say something nice about it. I'd love that. Appreciate it. And I'll talk more to you guys uh, about the book. Tommy, I'd say too, um, world those while you're at it, uh, Missing America got nominated for a Webby. Um, nice. So, Congrats. Yeah, vote. You know, smash that vote button if you're you're voting in the Webbies. That's the uh, best of the Internet Awards. I was I was pleased. My first Webby nomination, Tommy. Yeah, uh, you're you're almost on your way to we gotting, which is you know four more to go, I guess. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're like fuck you, man. Um, that's very exciting. Also, everyone should read the book. Pre-order the book. It will be great. I can't wait to read it. So check it out. Um, okay, let's turn to Chad, a place I don't, I don't know if we've ever talked about Chad on the show. But uh, Idris Deby, the president of Chad, has died from injuries that he reportedly sustained while visiting troops on the front lines who are fighting against rebel forces. 
The details of the story, Ben, are are like murky at best. It seems yeah. like maybe President Debbie was like visiting some troops who got overrun by rebel forces. He got wounded in the process, later died. I don't really know. Either way, you know, it's a big deal. I mean, the, President Debbie's been in power for 30 years. He just won a six-term, uh, albeit in a disputed election. A transitional military council led by uh, President Debbie's son said it will take charge for 18 months. Seems like a pretty long transition to me, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know. Chad has been involved in some like pretty intense fighting uh, against Boko Haram. Uh, it's dealt with a lot of regional instability with his neighbors in, in Sudan and Libya. Ben, you know, there's a lot we don't know about what happened here, but what did you, what did you make of the story? I mean, can you think of another head of state that got killed in a military conflict in in modern history, or or any other thoughts about like what it would mean for the region? So interestingly, I was thinking about exactly that question, Tommy, and uh, also interestingly, the person I thought of was Gaddafi, right? Um, yeah. Now, Gaddafi wasn't like fighting, but he was in an armed conflict. Uh, he was in his hometown of Sirte. Um, traveling in a convoy, uh, seeking to kind of escape from the collapse of his rule all around him, gets hit by a drone strike, tries to hide in a drain pipe, is dragged out of that drain pipe essentially by a mob and killed. Um, and and what's interesting about that is, you know, uh, the Libyan conflict um, kind of spilled over into places like Chad. Um, you know, so part of the instability in that part of the world is you know, fighters uh, or militants or, you know, gun runners and all the kind of instability that that arises from, you know, uh, a civil war and a kind of sense of chaos after. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so uh, you know, it, it just shows you that I'm not saying there's a direct correlation between those two deaths, but um, in a way, uh, that part of North Africa has been something of a conflict zone. And, um, and Chad has been this kind of, you know, he was the kind of leader who, because he was a counterterrorism partner, in part to the right. U.S., but largely the French. You know, I think the French, who've had a force in Mali of a few thousand troops uh, working closely with Chad, um, the French, the former colonial power in Chad, um, were very close to this this guy. And so, um, you know, I, I think it just is a reminder, right, that um, that part of the world, Chad, Niger, uh, obviously Libya, um, there remains a lot of instability, Mali. Um and, you know, you'd like to see some democratic process of succession. I would imagine that the combination of the way in which this guy died and the way in which politics works there, we're less likely to see that. Um, but what you don't want to see is a descent into all-out civil war, right, um, which would have a humanitarian cost. Uh, you know, obviously, risk of terrorism goes up when you have a situation like that. So the thing to to watch here is whether there can be some stability that leads to some kind of democratic process, rather than this leading uh, as a triggering event into to to you know more widespread civil war in the country. Yeah, and look again, I know nothing. I only know what I read. But when you read about you know a president mysteriously dying on the front lines and then an announcement from a military spokesman about how this sort of military council is taking over. You know, my, my sort of, uh, my coup suspicion radar went up, but then the person taking over was his son. Right. So I'm like, I don't, I don't know how to read this at all. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, and, and the, the fact of the matter is that, that, you know, more may not come out, you know, I mean, right. um, yeah. uh, th- this could be, you know, we may never exactly know what happened, but it, it, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's an unusual thing that a head of state dies in, uh, in, in actual conflict. 
Yes, very unusual thing. Um, okay, let's turn to just to Russia for a minute, Ben, because you know I, we talked at at some length uh, in, in the interview today with John Finer about you know Biden's views on on uh, you know the Russians amassing troops uh, on the border of Ukraine and and about Alexei Navalny uh, and you know sort of the general trajectory. But I really want to just you know give you a chance too to sort of offer your thoughts and in watching what's happening to Navalny, who's the opposition leader, who anti-corruption activist that we've talked about a number of times on the show, who by by a lot of reports is on this hunger strike and is like inching closer and closer to death. It, it doesn't sound like, you know, his, uh, he's getting the medical attention he needs. Like, w- what else are you hearing? And what do you think the West should be doing to try to, you know, fight to make sure this guy isn't slowly murdered in prison? So I, I heard, you know, I, I did hear from some people, um, you know, who were close to Navalny, um, who told me this is really serious. Could you tweet about this? Could you lift this up? You know, we need attention on this. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I believe it, you know, like the, there's a pattern um, in these cases where, you know, the Russians, they poison people, they weaken people, they put in, them in prison, they deny them yeah. care in prison, the, the conditions in the prisons are horrible, um, and, and people die. You know, um, and it's, you know, they, they've tried to kill Navalny a couple of times, a couple of other ways. Um, and I was really, you know, found it chilling. I was reading my audiobook, uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to plug my book. I'm saying this to kind of get across how much a guy like Navalny knew what he was signing up for in a way in that um, I was reading the audiobook yesterday, including kind of quoting Navalny. So I'm like reading these quotes mm-hmm. in his voice, which is a very chilling thing to do, given the reports. And and one of the things he said to me was, you know, of course I get afraid. And I get afraid because when you are put in a Russian prison, the moment when you hear the door, the cell door clang shut, you realize that they can do anything to you. Like they are totally in charge and, and you don't know what you're yeah. eating. You don't know what you're drinking. And it was really, a you know, harrowing to just kind of read his quote, you know, and think about, well, that's where, that's where he's at. And, and he's got a kid, he's got kids, he's got a wife, you know, he's, this is a human being, right? And, and it just, it's hard to describe how sadistic and fucked up it is that, that Vladimir Putin feels such impunity that he's just, you know, slowly potentially killing the most prominent opposition figure in the country. Um, and, you know, I, the previous most prominent opposition figure was probably Boris Nemtsov, who was shot and killed right in front of the Kremlin. Um, so this is, you know, this is, this is some next level stuff. I mean, this is not, this is not normal, you know. Um, I don't know, Tommy. I mean, what do you think? I have some more thoughts, but I mean, how, how have you been no, feeling I, uh, watching uh, this? It's horrifying. You feel like you're watching someone get... Uh, starved to death in front of your eyes. You know, we can't see him, but you're seeing these reports day by day. And then when you just, when you step back and think about sort of the the U.S.-Russian relationship and a series of events that have happened since really 2012 when Putin came back into power and, and, and took over from Medvedev, like it just kind of feels like the trajectory of U.S.-Russian relations is is just steadily downhill. You know, there's election interference, there's Crimea, there's hack after hack. And I, I at some point I'm just kind of wondering whether we have failed to find like a set of tools that really feels like it exacts a cost on Putin and might actually deter him. Like maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's rip shit pissed about this latest series of solar wind sanctions. I'm not questioning their judgment here, but it's like, 
you know, a couple of weeks ago, right, there were 40,000 troops uh, on the eastern Ukraine border. This morning, there's reports that it might be up to 120,000 yeah. soon. That seems like he's Putin's preparing to do something. So here's what I've been thinking about. Um, and, and, and first of all, you know, I've said this before, but, you know, the one thing we haven't done, right, is, is what Navalny was doing, right, which is if yeah. you take the full resources of the U.S. intelligence community and say, we are going to paint the most detailed, comprehensive picture of just how corrupt Vladimir Putin and his cronies are, and we're just going to start putting that out, you know? Um, you know, that I think might... <laughs> I think that might have an impact. Um, That's a good idea. Because you see how nervous he is just about Navalny's videos, right? Um, but here's what I was thinking. And I wanted to, I, I was thinking, I was just kind of sharing this today. It's like, not that I know the answer. There, 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 there are two scenarios to consider here. Because I'm not even sure what the U.S. can do at this point. Because we've tried resets. We've tried pressure. We, you know, I don't think you can say, well, because we sanctioned him or because Biden sanctioned him, he's doing this in response no, he's he's done things bad, you know, like invade other countries when we weren't sanctioning him. You know, it's right. I, Blaming I, Biden for the killer's comments. So ridiculous. Exactly. I think he does it for his own reasons. And here's what I was thinking about. There's kind of two ways to think about Vladimir Putin. Here's the worst case scenario is I was thinking that, you know, Russia lost the Cold War. And, and I, this is I'm not saying this is what I think is going to happen or is happening. But I, I want to paint the worst scenario and then I paint a different scenario. Russia lost the Cold War, and that, that was a hugely psychologically humiliating event uh, to the Putin psyche, for sure. And you know, we're only about 30 years after that. And we've seen this kind of radicalization of Russian nationalism, really Putin nationalism, that has led to you know, military actions like the occupation of a part of Georgia, the annexation of Crimea, the invasion of Ukraine, that is tied to them losing the Cold War, right? He's trying to take pieces of the Soviet Union back. He's started mm -hmm. to get more and more brazen at home, killing opponents. Um, the worst case scenario, right, is like, like Germany lost World War One, you know, and it was 20 years later, you get um, World War II, right? Um, I'm not saying we're going to have World War II, but the worst case scenario is that this vein of, of humiliation and this kind of radicalization of, of Putinism leading to invading mm -hmm. other countries, they could just invade Ukraine. And I'm not saying it's going to be full on World War III, but this could be a leader who gets worse and worse and worse, you know, and yeah. and, and starts killing people more, more brazenly in his own country, starts... You know, after Ukraine, maybe there is there another former Soviet republic he has his eye on, and and there's a situation where we're just in an incredibly dangerous position here for for as long as Vladimir Putin is there, um, and and that's the worst case scenario. I think the other scenario, which most of us, including myself, have thought, is this is a really corrupt guy who needs to remain in power so long as he's in power. He was rich and he's alive. If he loses power, he may no longer be either of those things, right? Because, uh, mm -hmm. you know, what, what is he, how many people has, right. has he pissed off over the years? And that all he really cares about is sticking around. And that even some of this stuff like you know, annexing Crimea is a way of him, you know, generating support at home and buttressing his legitimacy and, and he's a strong man and, it, oh, it distracts the public from his corruption and these other things. <laughs> That's actually the best case scenario is that he's just a corrupt mm -hmm. guy who wants to stay in power and he does this kind of nationalist flexing from time to time because it helps distract the public and, and give him legitimacy. And what's so frustrating about this is we don't know, you know, is it, it which end of the spectrum he is on. And it's just an incredibly dangerous 
situation because are we dealing with someone who wants to conquer Ukraine and is going to invade that country at some point to do that? And that could be a very bloody war. Or are we just dealing with someone who's like a troll who gins up you know, troops on the border when he needs a distraction or something? And I'm very sympathetic to the Biden administration. We just don't know. You know, we're not in this yeah. guy's head. But you have to assume the worst sometimes, you know. You have to assume the worst. And also, I think he just engineered himself the ability to run for, for two more terms, right? So he's not going anywhere unless he, he passes away for some reason. Well, and even the running is kind of incidental because, like, if, if Alexei Navalny could run against him, I think Alexei Navalny might have beaten him, right? But if yeah. he's going to kill anybody who poses a credible challenge to him, he's just he's there no matter what the rules say, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's not an easy one in, uh, in, in some issue I talked about with John Finer at some length. So stick around for that interview. And I imagine we'll come back to it again, Ben, because it's not easy. Well, and I, and I think at the end of the day, right, the only way this is going to get better, truly better, is, is if there's a different leadership in Russia, which, again, we are not going to impose, nor should we. I'm saying if like the Russian right. people make some changes. Um, in the meantime, all you can try to do is contain, put some guardrails around how bad this thing could get. And and even when we put all the sanctions on around the in- invasion of eastern Ukraine, we didn't necessarily think that was going to get him out of Crimea, but we thought that might be a deterrent against him going further, like because we're showing mm-hmm. like if you keep doing this, it's just going to keep getting worse for you. And that that may be the most you can do is just try to deter even worse actions by Putin. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, well, let's turn to um, some COVID news because, you know, we, we've talked a lot about, you know, positive developments here in the U.S., positive developments of vaccinations, but that's, you know, that that positive trajectory is not really the case globally. Uh, one country that's really struggling right now is India, where there are well over 200,000 new COVID cases being reported per day. I, I think I saw 200,000 is now like the seven-day average, and it's spiked as high as 275,000. And that's probably a, a massive undercount because yeah. the country's testing capacity is pretty overwhelmed. Hospitals have run out of oxygen. Uh, they're over capacity. Doctors are contending with the new strain of the virus. They're calling the double mutant, which combines a mutation that makes it more transmissible with one that helps it evade the immune system, which sounds wonderful. A year ago, India locked down pretty early when there were just 500 cases but that kind of you know, nationwide government intervention doesn't seem likely. In January, Prime Minister Modi basically declared victory over COVID. But now major religious festivals are carrying on as usual. There's cricket matches. He's having political rallies. India has developed a vaccine of its own. They have a lot of manufacturing capacity. And so far, they've distributed over 100 million doses domestically. And I think they exported 65 million doses to other countries, which has been absolutely crucial for a lot of other countries that don't have the ability to manufacture vaccines on their own. But now it seems like India is going to reduce its exports of vaccine because obviously, you know, they have to vaccinate a billion people. And that's a huge logistical challenge. And it's getting more urgent. So, Ben, this is like kind of the worst case scenario, I think, that everyone's been been dreaming of. You know, you have variants, you have overwhelmed healthcare systems, you have a government officials that not only won't put restrictions in place, but are actually hosting like big political rallies. A, a lot of people are understandably saying like the U.S. needs to do something, the U.S. needs to help. I'm not totally sure what the range of options are. I, I'm just, you know, your thoughts on, on, on what we're seeing here and if there's anything the U.S. can or should be doing. Well, I think, you know, first of all, um, you worry about India already because, you know, it's such a densely populated 
country in certain areas, right? And so it was always a place where a particular variant that gets out of control would be very worrisome. Um, and, you know, Modi's the brand of leader we've talked about a lot, right? Where he wants to avoid this. He wants, it's not what he wants to be talking about or focused on. Um, you know, he's got a lot in common with Bolsonaro in Brazil, where, you know, the, the other place where we have uh, these kinds of variants. And, he wants to create a kind of illusion of success around everything that he does. And COVID doesn't cooperate with leaders who want to create illusions of success, you know, because it's only going to respond to the science. I think that they're, they, they, if they're not going to be moving to lockdowns, there are only so much they're going to be able to do with vaccines in a country with a billion people. I mean, they have to move that as fast as they can. But uh, I think what the U.S. can do in part is some of the vaccine that was being exported from India was you know, being expressly um, developed and exported from there to this kind of pool of developing countries. And mm -hmm. it seems like what is likely going to be the case in India is that they're not going to be able to sustain a situation politically where they're shipping huge amounts of vaccine to other developing countries while they're getting ravaged by these COVID variants. And so frankly, part of what the US needs to do is figure out a way to make up the difference around the dissemination of vaccine to the developing world that then takes some of the pressure off India to, you know, to, to keep some of that vaccine in the country and just get shots and arms faster, right? So it yep. just shows you how this is all connected. This is all one big equation here because if the US working with other countries can dramatically ramp up the pool of vaccines that are available to say, Sub-Saharan African countries, then those Sub-Saharan African countries won't rely on the vaccine that's being produced in India, and it can it can stay there, and the Indians can hopefully bend the curve quicker with their vaccination policy. You know, so yeah, you'd like to see Modi move more to lockdowns. You'd like to see uh, the Indian government take this more seriously in terms of you know its its social policies. But if it's a vaccine equation then what the, what the rest of the world could do is try to make up the difference from the Indian vaccine that's not going to be going into the global pool here. Yes, that, that that's exactly right. There, there's just a global vaccine capacity problem. There's probably, you know, sort of precursor chemicals that go into the making of the vaccines. You're hearing about shortages of those. Like, I do think that, like, you know, the, the Biden team is going to have to just turbocharge uh, our ability to help everyone get what they need. Also, I don't know if we're still sitting on a bunch of AstraZeneca vaccine, but it seems like uh, that ship has sailed and we should get that stuff to whoever needs it and whoever will take it as soon as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And I still think that this intellectual property idea needs to be pursued as well. I do too. Potentially. I just don't, it's fascinating. I just don't understand why you wouldn't do it, but hey, you know, I don't I'm, not, I'm not a pharma executive, so. <laughs> well, we uh, we play we play one on Twitter when we when we can. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Twitter, Ben, we're, we're recording this Tuesday afternoon. I just saw uh, come across uh, the Twitter transom that Derek Chauvin was found guilty on all three charges. Uh, Derek Chauvin is the piece of shit who uh, murdered George Floyd um, and you know sparked months of protests because of his just callous actions. So that is obviously an enormous relief, uh, some justice for George Floyd's family, for people you know, around the world watching America and wondering if uh, people of color are, you know, allowed to be just murdered with impunity by police or if there's some accountability here. And, and this is a good step forward. Yeah. I mean, if it, we were talking before, if it had been a not guilty verdict, um, not only would that have set off protests here, but I'm sure that would have set off protests internationally, just like, 
you know, people should remember that the murder of George Floyd was a global event, you know, that sparked protests yeah. all over the world. And we've had guests on the show from France and the UK where they had significant movements tied to this. Um, I mean, the only thing I'd say, like, is when I saw the verdict come through, I, I, I kind of figured he'd be guilty just because it was so fast, you know, to get a verdict done. Yeah. And then I was like, every other case in my life that I remember like this, the, the cop was found not guilty, which was kind of a crazy yeah. thing to realize, you know, but hopefully this is a sign that maybe that's changing. I don't know. I hope, I, I hope it's a good sign, but, um, you know, good, good, a little tiny bit of good news, obviously a horrific situation. Yeah. Um, but, uh, one we've all been, been watching closely. Um, so, so mother, very different COVID news, Ben, I saw that, you know, residents of New Zealand and Australia, now have built a bubble. You can travel freely between the two countries for the first time in over a year. They're calling it a travel bubble. Uh, it's possible because both of them have basically eradicated COVID. And I was trying to think, is there a better two-country bubble to get stuck in for a while while a, a pandemic passes than New Zealand and Australia? I, I'm not sure I could think of one. Well, you've got a wide open space there, you know? Um, mm-hmm. I, I, and uh, like beautiful country and like, some cool cities they're tucked in, right? So I don't know. That's that's pretty high on the list. I mean, I, unless your bubble is like a, the kind of bubble you're into is like a couple of Pacific islands or something, you know, mm. um, which probably don't that's have COVID anyway, too. right? Um, uh, yeah. Other than that, yeah, I don't know. Like, what would, what would you throw on your bubble? You know, like I, I sort of think of it, is my bu- does my bubble need to be adjacent, you know, like, like a, a France-Spain situation? I don't know how well they're dealing with covid but that's not a bad place to kill some time. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think New Zealand, Australia, that might be about as good as it gets. It's pretty sweet being on an island uh, in a pandemic where you can completely seal it off from from new cases. Yeah, but a very large island. <laughs> so that there's very a, large lot, island, a lot to do that. Island. That probably, you know, maybe the Pacific Islands might turn into like a castaway, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. talking to a volleyball type situation, you know, if you're, if yeah. you're there to like, if you don't get the Tom Hanks reference. Um yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you like, but what's interesting to me about the COVID lockdown is as someone who's like travels a lot and likes to travel, if I could go anywhere right now, I'd like, I'd love to go to like a teeming Southeast Asian, you know, city. I would too. You know what I mean? Like go to like Vietnam. Thailand or something, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like eat some street food and like just be around masses of humanity, you know, because I've been isolated, right? So that may be where I zag a little bit from you in that like- well, the bubble would be good on an island, but like, I can't wait to get back out there and just be around Me human too. beings, you know? It's all I want. It's all I want is to go to like a big packed, you know, New York restaurant or something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Ugh. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR 
by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. All right, what, one update or sort of correction on something we talked about last week. Uh, so we, we talked about this incident in Iran that had targeted the Natanz nuclear facility and damaged a big chunk of the centrifuges that Iran uses to enrich nuclear material. I think there have been some early reports that I had seen or I don't know, somewhere that described it as a cyber attack of some sort. But the subsequent reporting I've read has described what happened as like an explosion, basically, that cut off power to the centrifuges. That caused them to spin out of control and, and, and be damaged. So sorry for getting that wrong. But, you know, in some ways, for me, Ben, that if that's how it all went down, it makes the whole incident even more surprising because whoever pulled this off was able to gain physical access to this incredibly sensitive and presumably well-guarded nuclear facility. The New York Times had an interesting analysis piece uh, today about how, you know, if you look over the last sort of year or two, Israeli intelligence seemingly has been able to pull off lots of these kinds of operations deep inside Iran. There was the Al-Qaeda guy who was shot up in the street by some assassin. There's even suspicion now that the former deputy commander of the Quds Force, which is the elite uh, Iranian military force that does a lot of their external operations abroad, he might have been assassinated. There are reports that he died of like, you know, a heart attack, basically. And now people are wondering if that was true. So fascinating piece. Highly recommend it. Um, It is remarkable to me that, uh, you know, these these sensitive sites are just blowing up over and over again. I just it's it's amazing. Well, I mean, it it is pretty remarkable. And and look, like we said at the time, the Israelis kind of seem to want people to know they did it. Um, If you looked at the comments from the the IDF and the Israeli government. Um, And so kind of being that upfront about basically being responsible for making something blow up in another country. uh, I mean, it it reinforces that like a cyber war or conventional attack are are really the same thing these days, right? Mm -hmm. But we tend to think of cyber as somehow less aggressive. But this is showing you, like you said, there have been assassinations, that there have been acts of violence um, inside of Iran. And the Iranians, of course, have carried out proxy attacks and, you know, in all all kinds of places, although not 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 that many that I'm aware of in, in Israel recently. It shows you that there's basically this kind of low-grade war between Israel and mm-hmm. Iran. And that, like that's how we have to think of it. Is It's not as if there's peace and there's war. We're somewhere in between here where they're hitting each other. They're kind of circling around each other. Um, and obviously, the danger is always that that can escalate. Um, I, I will I will say that, you know, the, the risk, right, from the Israeli perspective, and again, this is why we favored a nuclear deal, is that, you know, that the, the Iranians, you know, the, we discovered, um, you know, the, the Gom facility, which they dug into a, a mountain. You know, so the Natanz mm-hmm. is one of their main nuclear facility. Their other one is called Fordo, and it's in the city of Gom, and it's like inside a mountain. Um, you're definitely incentivizing them to take the whatever nuclear program they're pursuing secret, you know. And I mm-hmm. guess the Israeli bet is that between American and Israeli intelligence, we're so monitoring this this space of uh, Iranian right. nuclear uh but I don't know that's you know that is tricky because uh, you kind of want to know where all the, the stuff is and to have an eye on it um and I do worry a little bit as someone who doesn't want Iran to get a nuclear weapon that that these kinds of sabotage attacks are going to incentivize just pushing it all underground but um I guess that's a risk that the Israelis feel like they, if they're that deep inside of Iran 
maybe they feel like that they're, they're gonna they're gonna spot it because you can't. It's not that easy to hide, you know, all the different components that have to go into a nuclear facility. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good point though about pushing it to, into the secret world. Yeah, um, some very very different nuclear news here, Ben. Uh, last week, the Japanese government announced that. They're planning to start releasing radioactive water uh, left over from the Fukushima nuclear plant disaster into the Pacific Ocean in about two years. Uh, the Fukushima plant was damaged in 2011 when a massive earthquake and then a tsunami hit the region. The water that we're talking about them releasing was used to cool that melted nuclear material in the facility. It was then treated and pumped into these storage tanks that are just sort of littered around the plant. Uh, this treatment process, which I don't even pretend to understand, supposedly reduces the amount of radioactive material down to levels that are safe to release. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, environmental groups and local fishermen aren't thrilled with the idea about releasing over a million tons of this treated water into the ocean. Plant officials say they have to get rid of it because they have all these storage tanks around uh, the facility. It's taking all the space up and it's preventing them from uh, conducting the rest of the cleanup activities. So, Ben, reading all this stuff and digging back into the Fukushima disaster, it brought me back to that time in early 2011 when like the Arab Spring had been going for a couple months and like the, the world just felt like it was being upended for a whole bunch of reasons. But I think meetings about this. Yeah were some of the scariest because there were definitely times where I wondered, like, I don't know that anyone is going to get a handle on this. I'm not sure that this is fixable, but wondering what your memories of, uh, of that time was and like where, where these conversations kind of ranked for you in terms of, you know, existential dread. Yeah. When I, when I think about like Potsy, the world bread and butter, right. We don't get Jared rants as much anymore, but, but stories wise, like this is a good one in the sense, uh, a scary one. I remember being in these video conferences, right, where first of all, like our ambassadors on the VTC, when we didn't quite know just how bad this was, but it looked really bad in terms of this nuclear leak, and it did end up killing a lot of people in the area. But it was close enough to Tokyo that there was discussion of evacuating Americans from Tokyo. Yeah. And, yes. and, and so the scary scenario people have to keep in mind is if the U.S. embassy starts evacuating Americans from Tokyo – this whole city of over like 10 million people is going to freak the fuck out and you're going to have mass chaos of people trying to get out of there and stuff. And it was such a hard decision because on the one hand, you don't want to put Americans in any risk. But on the other hand, you know, if you say, hey, we're advising you to leave that and because there were a lot of Americans in Tokyo, tens and tens of thousands of Americans work there. Not only are those people going to try to get out, but a lot of other people are. And and so that I remember being about the, the hardest thing. I think in the end, um, you know, we did advise like pregnant women and, and, you know, certain vulnerable populations to take extra precaution, but that the science kind of ultimately pointed to the less alarmist scenario, but we were close. And, yeah. and it did make me consider what would that look like? And then the other thing is there was some concern about this stuff drifting over the Pacific Ocean, like contaminated right, toxic right. air literally coming to the West Coast of the United States. And, and look, I, I, I know people think that nuclear power obviously needs to be part of the solution for climate change. And, and But man, you, you live through something like that and you, 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 uh, you do think that like, you know, maybe... Uh, Maybe there, there's, you know, there's, there's safer ways of getting energy. I, I know I'm going to get dunked on by the nuclear power stands out there, but uh, that, that scared the shit out of me. Oh, God, it scared the shit out of me. Yeah, you're, you're, you're just, you're okay with 
catastrophic risk. You know, maybe it won't happen. Maybe it's a tiny, tiny low level of it, but that was horrifying. I also think that that debris and garbage from uh, the tsunami is, is like still drifting around the Pacific Ocean, like massive yeah. piles of, of debris and stuff from from just that one incident. And there are going to be more, you know? I mean, that's the thing is um, the one thing you can count on is natural disasters and climate change is going to precipitate more natural disasters here. So um, I think, you know, people should not, you have to take into account um, as you're making decisions about things like nuclear energy, like what the what the risks are as well as the, the benefits. Yeah, absolutely. Because here we, and, here we know, are, think- we don't even know what to do with this water, right? I mean- no, it, right, right, right. And the, yeah, these are not problems that have uh, uh, short half-lives. In fact, they have yeah. very long ones often by design. So uh, Biden's got some big climate decisions coming up. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on those and talk about this more, I'm sure, very soon. Um, ben, we, we, I think we both saw the story that uh, Azerbaijan is making a run at, you know, opening the most offensive museum in existence with this new, uh, it's called the Park of War Trophies in Baku, the capital city. So we talked a lot last year about you know all the intense fighting between Azerbaijan and Armenia in the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region. Lots of soldiers died, lots of civilians died, lots of people were displaced, and it ended with Azerbaijan taking a lot of territory. Um, so this open air museum that they've they've opened up uh, just started taking out visitors. It includes these just unbelievably creepy wax mannequins of of uh, Armenian soldiers in dead or dying positions. It includes hundreds of actual helmets that were supposedly worn by Armenian soldiers. There's abandoned Armenian tanks and and guns. It's like really dark stuff, especially since, you know, this is not ancient history. This happened yeah. a few months ago. There's still POWs. There's still people unaccounted for. Uh, and it wasn't some fringe thing like done by a group of extremists, right? The, the president of Azerbaijan went to the opening of the, the thing. So uh, I, I'm just, you know, it's like it's tempting to kind of make fun at how fucked up it is because that's what I do when things are dark. But also I do wonder what, you know, sort of like uh, a, a museum that's designed to incite ethnic tensions says about the prospects for peace and reconciliation between Armenia and Azerbaijan or just the likelihood that this will be a low grade conflict for in perpetuity. I think it says it's a low-grade conflict, right? And I think also, though, that like if if this is what you're doing as president of Azerbaijan, like you're what you're doing is not <laughs> making your country. This doesn't show strength, right? I mean, no, it no. shows the opposite of what they think it. You know, it shows they probably think it shows how tough they are. And uh, if, if the best thing you can offer your people is some museum about a bunch of people you killed in the neighboring country, like. You're not providing your people with opportunity. You're not providing your people with education. You're not trying to plug in your country to the world. You're just trying to cling to power by being the kind of person who goes to a museum that has like the helmets of dead people. I mean, it's it's totally fucked up. Yeah, it's totally fucked up. Uh, okay, let's talk about a much more uplifting, literally, story. So the coolest thing I've seen this week or maybe ever in my life, uh, is NASA launched uh, a small helicopter on Mars named Ingenuity. So it's, it's amazing because one, obviously like doing anything on Mars is just unfathomable to me. But two, the atmosphere on Mars is one one hundredth as dense as Earth's. So the, the helicopter had to be engineered to be super light, had to have incredibly fast rotor speeds. And then it had to do all this without being able to be like connected or like controlled by, uh, you know, ground patrol. So 
the first flight was a success. Ingenuity hovered 10 feet off the ground for 30 seconds. It did it fully autonomously. NASA says they could attempt up to four more flights, most of which are just designed to test the thing, like short flights. But the last flight could travel some serious distances, maybe up to 2,300 feet up in the air or like 700, 800 feet away. Amazingly, Ben, like Ingenuity, this thing cost $85 million out of the $2.7 billion mission. And it uses a processor that was designed, I think, by Qualcomm for a cell phone. Like that's the amount of, you know, tech that's in this guy. So it could, it sounds like this could be the first of many future Mars copters that will give scientists the ability to just see and study so much more terrain. So I don't know, this is just the coolest thing ever to me. I, I, it, this stories like this make me want to be alive for another like a hundred years so that I can see the 10th version of ingenuity because you just, you know, it's going to be incredible. Well, it's like in a dark world, right. That we talk a lot about some of the tough stuff going on. Like it's good to be reminded that like human beings can do some amazing stuff. And then, and that if like the yeah. next five or 10 years, we won't just see like further challenges, democracy and, and, and the negatives of technology, we can see this kind of stuff. Um, I'm going to veer out of my way to like take a shot at, at something Biden is doing though. Um, that mm. is connected, right? What's connected is 2.7 billion sounds like a lot of money. Um, but I think if you look at the track record of space exploration, the, there are all these other benefits we get out of the science that is developed that goes into this, you know, the miniaturization of stuff, like what, well, mm-hmm. what we obviously will learn uh, on Mars, it can be repurposed for other things, but the, you know, the technologies used to do things like this end up having other uses. And if you look at the, US, the Pentagon budget, like the Biden is not cutting that, that budget, right? And a lot of that money is is stuff like if airplanes we don't need you know like we, what we need a bunch of f-35s or are we going to be fighting you know dog fights in the air are we going to need long-range bombers for like there, there's there's an enormous amount i think of cost overrun in that defense budget and biden mm-hmm. has rightly talked a lot about the need for america to be at the cutting edge of research and development and innovation and you know you know china is beating us on all these technologies so i'm all for spending money on science and R&D and, and even space exploration. And, and I think for, for much less money than some of these bloated defense items, or for instance, like we're developing a new ICBM, you know, mm-hmm. for, 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 for nuclear weapons, right? Like, I don't think we need to do that. You know, like I'd rather spend that money on stuff like this, you know? So I do think, I hope that we recognize that, that while this sounds like a lot of money, it's a lot less than the you know, $800 billion, which, you know, I think has a, a significant amount of fat on that budget for the Pentagon. So um, this is where I'd be channeling, you know, the the cutting edge uh, de- development, not to say we won't invest in weapons too, but like uh, maybe take a little bit off the top of the Pentagon budget, put a lot of that into kind of the domestic stuff we're talking about, but some of that into this kind of thing where there are added benefits. Yeah. You know, something I think about a lot is Obama's 2011 budget, it, it shut down, uh, I think, NASA's like longer term plan to return astronauts to the moon. But like, I, you know, early on in the administration, you know, we were under so much pressure by the deficit hawks that, yeah. that seemingly no longer exist, which is incredible. <laughs> yeah. Except Larry um, Summers. To, Larry to, Summers is still out there <laughs> walking around. So Larry, to, to cut all these programs to like, you know, tighten our belts, et cetera, et cetera. And Obama ended up cutting a program. You're, I, I totally agree with you. Like, you know, it was a one is a tough political hit in places like Florida that we probably didn't need. But two, 
you know, it's just the return on these things are completely unpredictable. It's exciting. It also, I mean, think about the entire country just kind of all eagerly reading about, you know, the Mars program or another return to the moon, right? Like it, it unites us in a way that is patriotic, but not jingoistic. It's not nationalist in a way that's like ex- excluding others. Like I'm excited for the, you know, the Chinese or others who are or putting things in orbit around Mars. Like I, I think space exploration should be exciting. It should be science-based. It should be funded. So there's, there was like, this is a theme in my, in my book, right? And, and so again, forgive me, Worldos, but, I, but this has actually been Please. in front of brain for me, which is that I thought a lot about like, how did I think of myself as an American? Like in the subtitle of my book is being American in the world we made. And, and part of the basic subtext of that is that growing up, like the Cold War, like your, your American identity was kind of tied up in this thing where you're on the one side of the Cold War and the Russians are on the other mm-hmm. and it's freedom versus, you know, communism and, or capitalism versus communism. But I also thought about like the big things, like Obama used to say, like America does big things. And I remember after the bin Laden operation, he's like, this is a big thing we did, but it was killing somebody and it, it wasn't like going yeah. to the moon, you know? And and as right. a kid, part of my conception of America is we went to the moon and, or, you know, we, even as a New Yorker, I remember as a kid going to see the 100th anniversary of the Brooklyn Bridge and even just like building the Brooklyn Bridge was this big thing that we did. And, and part of what I like about this infrastructure bill and this Mars thing is that I think you're right. I think it's worth creating a sense of national identity. What does it mean to be an American? You and I can be proud of the Mars thing. So can somebody, you know, who's on the right wing of a bunch of stuff. Like, I I think it's important that there be spaces that are not militaristic, that are not political. They're sports, they're science. They're those things that bring people together. There's engineering. Like that used to be part of how you tied together a nation of people from everywhere, of immigrants from everywhere, of people of different political persuasions. And and I do think it's important for us to think about getting back to doing some of those things. I know the criticisms like, you know, spend X amount of money to go to the moon when people are, are obviously have huge needs here on Earth. Um, that ha- obviously has to be balanced and the prioritization should be on doing things that can help people. But but I, you know what? I, I actually think that it is... Look, better to have a national identity tied up with things like space exploration and and Olympic athletics than post 9-11 wars, you know, because what Bush did was like say, well, we've had this kind of gap where there's a lack of national identity and national purpose after the Cold War. So I'm going to make the entire purpose of this country vanquishing these terrorists after 9-11. And that's part of how we got Iraq. And that's part of how we got all the way into Afghanistan, because it was like, it wasn't just going to be enough to go kill al-Qaeda. We had to do something bigger, you know, and and that led to some dark places. So I think it's worth thinking hard about other ways of, of creating a space for national identity. National service is another one of them. It's, it's, it's something that, that is, is more important than I think we, we give it credit for, you know. I totally agree. I was just reading uh, in this book about uh, uh, 1976 and the country's bicentennial which was sort of coming off this like kind of dark period, uh, you know, with Nixon and Watergate and all these disclosures from the you know, church committee about like CIA assassination campaigns and malfeasance, right? And there just wasn't a lot, Vietnam, there wasn't a lot to feel great about in the country. Like people weren't exactly excited. And then there was this big bicentennial celebration that no one was kind of 
anticipating or excited about necessarily. And then when it happened, people were super into it and it, and it brought yeah. people together. And I, I agree, like people just need, like you want, you got to rally people around something, especially now when we're all literally isolated in our homes because of COVID or before that we were isolated in our cell phones because right, all of us exist in iMessage more than we like speak to people. So yeah. No, and, and look, it connects like Azerbaijan, right? Their national identity is now tied up in like a museum with a bunch of like killed Ar- Armenians. Like that's dark, right? You, you know, leaders, if, if you're not channeling that desire for belonging and, and identity into something constructive, it usually ends up getting channeled into us versus them. identity-based stuff, dark places, right? We are not those people. We're not, you know, we, we, it's like this caucus, you know, these nut job Anglo-Saxon caucus that the Republicans have, like that's the other theory, right? Ethno-nationalism, like we are the white people from this white culture, or, or we're not the immigrants or the brown people, or we're not the terrorists, we're not radical Islam, we're not the black president. And and I really think a big piece of this is when I look back, you know, the moon, the civil rights movement, the, the things that make me proud to be an American, what are those next iterations of that? What are the things that can give us a positive sense of who we are as a people? And I think space exploration is is one of them. It's not everything. Um, but scientific ingenuity is something that Americans have usually gotten pretty jazzed about, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, this this conversation, uh, unexpectedly, but very interesting, have dovetails with this next conversation, which is about European soccer, which is also totally, very much totally tied up connected. in identity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so there have been these reports, uh, and, and soccer fans are pretty pissed, Ben, about this proposal to create a European uh, Super League. I don't know if you've heard about this. Yeah, oh, yeah. But yeah, so, yeah. so I, like, I don't know how much listeners watch, you know, the the Premier League or European soccer, but I'll try to give them like a simplified version because like I'm not that familiar with it personally. But, you know, the way this European soccer system currently works is there's all these domestic soccer leagues, right? There's the English Premier League, Spain has a league, France, Germany, Italy, they all have leagues. And they're all, you know, the the the, the quality within the leagues uh, ebbs and flows like any sports league, but like, you know, in most places, there's a, uh, a league owned by a really rich guy who can pay lots of really good players and they kick ass. Right. Um, so on top of that competition within these domestic leagues, there's these sort of, uh, intercontinental competitions to see which domestic league is best. So you, the top teams compete in the champions league, right? So the, the winner of that is the, is the best team in Europe. So like someone from the, a, a team from Spain plays against an English premier league team to see who's the best and they're, they're crowned the winner. What this new super league proposal would do is it would take uh, start with the 12 best teams from Spain, Italy, and England, put them into this like new league that is a closed ecosystem where they only play each other. And then the benefit for those teams is they all split all the money that the best teams get from TV deals and sponsorships among themselves. And the goal was to grow the Super League to a total of 20 teams. Now, all the other leagues went nuts. Yeah, they would crush uh, the, the bo- other leagues. Yeah. Exactly, right. So like the, the, the Champions League, the body that oversees them, they're furious. The domestic leagues are furious. Fans are furious because it just robs them of any chance. So Boris Johnson, Emmanuel Macron, they've denounced it. So Ben, like right as we were coming in, there was a new report that this might be unraveling. But I was just trying to imagine, like, for us, if some... And, oh, by the way, a lot of these uh, Super League uh, team owners are American. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's especially annoying. But, like, imagine if, like, some Russian oligarch came in, bought the 12 best Major League Baseball teams, said, now you're only going to play each other. Sorry, all the small markets. Like, you're screwed. 
Well, it's it's fucking bullshit. And well, number one, I would hope that the world audience like overlaps with the type of Americans who watch like Premier League soccer. I bet it does. But it is. It's like the worst of capitalism, right? Because you know it is totally connected to what we we're just talking about. Because sports yeah. is a big piece of people's identity. And in a way, Tommy, what, what this is is right. This is capitalism. This is why this is what the, 100%. the excesses 100%. of capitalism ruin everything, right? Um, and and a bunch of billionaires who want to get a little bit richer by hoarding the pot and then therefore starving the the soccer teams from smaller cities in these countries. This has kind of happened in the United States in minor league baseball. Um, so minor league baseball has basically been getting starved too, right? And there's been consolidation and you know moving teams and 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 you, you know you got these cities that had like a, a minor league team for a while and then suddenly it's taken away, um, and that really robs a place of its identity, you know. Um, and 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 this is like we need to think about as Americans about like capitalism, like the, the, it needs all kinds of guardrails and regulations and reining in of excesses. And this is yet another area of that where the profit motive alone, if the profit motive is the only thing driving the sports owner, of course you do this. But by yeah. doing this, you then ruin what people love about sports, which is how much these teams are tied to places, right? Um, and and I hope this doesn't happen for that reason. I hope that the national, you know, where capitalism is out of control, national leaders should step in and 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 prevent something from happening. And I hope they prevent this from happening. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously, sports is a business, but if you're like, uh, you know, a Milwaukee Brewers fan, it it sucks when you know teams in L.A. or Boston or New York can have like two or three times your payroll and kick your ass all the time, or or go buy your best player. But it's a business that has succeeded because people could come to love athletes because those athletes played in their city for a long time. Oh, yeah, totally. And actually, so they're going to potentially kill the the allure of these sports because if, if basically players are for hire in smaller and smaller numbers of places, then less and less people are going to be into soccer or into whatever the other sport is, you know? And the same way that, by the way, free agencies, we're doing it in this rabbit hole, this is more for Jason, <laughs> take line, you know, but like, like, in the same way that like players just leaving uh, cities whenever they can in other American sports has probably undercut how much people like baseball, you know, because their team can't afford free agents anymore. Yeah, I do think you need like a better salary cap. I mean, like parity is everything. I think you know, especially in sort of the Europe, the the like the EPL, Europe, the English Premier League, you have all these teams that are just not great, but they get some money and attention and you know like excitement when they get to play some of the best teams. And then you know some of the worst teams get relegated to a league below. So there's all these added excitement. And yeah, it does sound like this super league idea would just like absolutely rip out and trash the entire like DNA or the backbone of the way yeah. uh, European soccer is set up and, and frankly the reason why so many people love it. So it was good to read as we were just kind of walking in that this thing might be dead. Yeah, yeah. For one thing, Boris Johnson finally doing something good. <laughs> yeah, Boris Johnson. Uh, okay, when we come back, we'll have my conversation uh, with Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer. So stick around for that. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. 
Aw. I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. I am so excited to welcome John Finer to the show. He is President Biden's Deputy National Security Advisor. Uh, he, he's a friend and a colleague for a long time. John, great to talk with you. Great to be here. Thanks a lot for having me. So, we, you know, we were sort of like chit-chatting offline. I'm like trying to always sort of imagine you guys in, in the various spaces that, uh, we, you know, Ben and I used to haunt back in the day. So my, my first question is sort of like, curiosity about how you're you're operating during covid because you know nsc staffers like yourself you spend most of your your waking uh existence in rooms called skiffs where you're allowed to look at classified information uh it's hard to imagine a less covid friendly environment uh you can't like you know social distance in the situation room or, or crack a window to improve airflow for obvious reasons are you guys able to have full national security council meetings yet like are you functioning in a way that feels normal how has that been going i'd say we're functioning pretty close to normal in the way that you would remember uh, the nsc uh and w- there are a few big exceptions to that one is everybody's still wearing masks in all of our meetings and everywhere we go the other is the situation room itself uh, most of the principals and the deputies and the others who would normally gather there are on the screen as opposed to live and in person. So you have the White House team in the room. You have the departments and agencies on video. And, and to be honest, it's worked uh, pretty well so far. I'm not sure you'd notice a, a major difference other than those two things. I mean, that's kind of sweet for the cabinet because I'm sure those commutes get old pretty fast. Yeah, exactly. People still complain about too many meetings. I'm sure that's not a surprise uh, to you <laughs> to hear. But if you don't have to actually get in the car and drive over to the White House, it makes it a little easier to, to make demands on people's time. Yeah. So, look, you've had a lot of like serious government jobs. You're you know, John Kerry's chief of staff. But you also you know, had a job at one point where you helped prepare the deputy national security advisor to be in a million NSC meetings, uh, and now you are running them yourself. Like, how has the transition been? Like, what what kind of uh, things are you learning about the process that you didn't know before? Yeah, it's a bit scary to think that it was, I don't know, nine or 10 years ago that I was uh, working out of the, the very same office uh, when, when Tony Blinken, now our Secretary of State, uh, had the job that I have, the Deputy National Security Advisor uh, job. I would say the biggest difference is uh, that in the meetings themselves, uh, you know, in, in this role, you're the one that actually has to, has to lead the meetings. There's a lot more preparation that goes into sort of behind the scenes and, and getting ready for the actual show. Uh, but in, in my previous role, once you got into the meeting, you could sort of take notes, uh, start thinking about the rest of the day, but you didn't actually necessarily have to be on uh, at all times. The, the sort of exhausting thing about this job is in, in all the conversations, you're the one uh, sort of calling on people, making sure the conversation stays on track. Uh, so, so the meetings themselves are, are the event. Yeah, they, they definitely are. Um, all right, let's turn to some some policy stuff. Uh, I was hoping to start with Russia because, you know, you're seeing these increasingly uh, alarming and alarmed quotes from Ukrainian officials about Russia amassing, uh, by some estimates, over 100,000 troops on the border of eastern Ukraine or in Crimea. There are Russian military exercises in the Black Sea that are ongoing. I know that Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, has met with allies in NATO to, to talk about this. Um, he said that if Russia acts recklessly, there will be consequences. Can you just help listeners understand like, w- what kinds of things are you watching for and what kind of Russian actions do you feel like, okay, will lead to consequences? So we've obviously uh, seen exactly what you're talking about, a significant buildup of Russian forces on the border with Ukraine. We've been quite clear that this is a a concern. This is a place that Russia is already 
uh, causing a lot of instability uh, through the separatists and uh, the rebels that it that it sponsors, that it backs in eastern Ukraine, who have been fighting uh, against the government there. Now they are putting their own forces on the border. Obviously, the concern is uh, a repeat of what we saw in, in 2014, when I think without the rest of the world really uh, seeing it coming or knowing it was going to be coming, the Russians uh, launched a full-on uh, military intervention in Ukraine. So we've been uh, pretty direct, mm-hmm. uh, both with the Ukrainians, uh, that we that we want to have their backs in this situation, and, and we want to stand up uh, for their sovereignty and their territorial integrity, and directly with the Russians too. Uh, President Biden spoke directly with President Putin, said he was concerned about this, said the Russians should pull back their forces. We don't know exactly what their intentions are, uh, but we've tried to be clear about what would be a big problem for us in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I saw that, that Jake Sullivan recently said there there will be consequences uh, if anything happens to Alexei Navalny, who's the Russian opposition leader, currently being uh, unjust, unjustly imprisoned by the Russians uh, and reportedly in, in very bad medical shape. What kind of leverage do you think the international community has to help ensure Navalny's safety? And then, you know, sort of relatedly, I wonder if you guys have considered, you know, taking a page out of Navalny's playbook and publicizing corruption by Putin uh, and those around him, because it, it does seem like that in, that path uh, or that tactic in particular has really um, upset Putin and, and caused him to react. So we came into office uh, already having a lot of issues uh, with the Russians. President Biden said very early in his tenure, I think it was just about the first week in office, in a phone call with President Putin, that we were going to hold Russia accountable for a series of things it had done, including uh, the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, that we considered just to be beyond the pale. Uh, That included Mm -hmm. their interference in our election. Uh, that included the intrusion in, in solar winds and the, the stealing of information uh, related to, to that cyber uh, attack. And uh, just in the last uh, week or two, we have actually imposed those consequences now on, on Russia. We took a series of steps related uh, to Navalny, including uh, some sanctions, including some other things, uh, as well as on election interference, uh, where we uh, decided to uh, sanction a few Russian companies that were involved in that work. We sent some uh, Russian uh, operatives in the United States out of the country. Uh, and so the goal of this is not to escalate with Russia. Russia is a big country. It's got a sophisticated military. Uh, it is still a world power, even though it's, it's maybe not on the order that it was uh, during the Cold War. Our goal is to put uh, stability and predictability into this uh, relationship and to speak to them honestly and hold them accountable. And, and those last two pieces are important. We don't think we've seen that in the last four years of the relationship where the Trump administration, we think, too often let them off the hook uh, for the kinds of things they were doing. Yeah, no, look, they, they absolutely did let, leave them off the hook. But though, and when I sort of step back and think about, okay, starting in 2012, when, when Putin returns to the presidency, it does sort of feel like things have just gotten steadily worse, right? I mean, there's the annexation of Crimea, the election interference, hack after hack after hack. You know, the U.S. has piled on a lot of sanctions on Russia, including uh, the really significant sanctions that you guys announced last week as a result of solar winds. But it's just, it's never been clear to me what actually deters Putin? Like, do, do you have a sense of what kind of things actually, you know, get his attention and, and can deter these activities? So, look, our sense is that no single action that we take in this regard is going to change Russia's uh, behavior in and of itself or change its calculus. What this is going to take is a sustained effort over time, including speaking honestly and publicly about what we see that Russia is doing that we don't accept, including, by the way, and here's another area where 
we're taking a different approach uh, from that of our of our predecessors, working closely with partners and allies so that it's not just our sanctions. It's actually our European partners who have much more economic activity with Russia. So their sanctions are much more consequential uh, than ours are. So making sure that they work uh, together with us and so we move together uh, so that the costs on Russia for the things it's doing are, are greater. And then also, by the way, finding ways to work with Russia. Uh, you know, Russia may be a country that treats us uh, in an adversarial way in a number of areas, but we also work with them on Iran. We work with them on North Korea. We work with them uh, to an extent on arms control. And so we have a, an affirmative agenda with Russia as well that we're going to pursue even as we hold uh, them accountable. So I want to turn to uh, Afghanistan for a minute. So, you know, President Biden made a big decision uh, to get all U.S. troops out of Afghanistan by September 11th of this year. Can you just like kind of take us inside the process for how he arrived at that decision? Did you guys have a series of meetings? Were there like international consultations? Like, How do you come to a decision that big in the, in the Biden administration? Sure. And look, I'm obviously now talking to someone, uh, you who has been uh, through an Afghanistan a policy decision process and a review from your time in government. So you have some sense of what this must yeah. have been like. A few too many meetings. A few too yeah. many. And you know, in the past, there's there's been some ugliness to it. There's been a lot of leaks yeah. associated with these processes. A lot of people have strong views, and understandably so, after 20 years of conflict. I think one of the things we're proud of in the last few months is that we really did run an intensive process. I think 10 or 11 deputies committee meetings, uh, three or four principals committee meetings, four or five times where the whole interagency got together with the president so that he could hear directly from his commanders uh, in the field uh, from the leaders of the Pentagon and the State Department, exactly what they thought was the best way forward. So this was an intensive process. People say, you know, didn't the president know what he wanted to do, having worked on Afghanistan before? And the truth is, if you've been out of office four years, you may come in with strong views, but you have to really dig in on an issue of of such high stakes and high consequence, so you understand what's changed since your last time, uh, you know, in these mm-hmm. in these roles. And he really spent the time to do that. He asked hard questions. He engaged our partners and allies. In the end, he made the decision that he made after I think we really did do everything possible to surface honest options for him about uh, what the possibilities were. You know, like you're seeing a lot of people look, I mean, I I think there are some of the usual suspects who are coming out and saying, oh, we're cutting and running. Oh, you know, like uh, this should be conditions based, right? The the Lindsey Grahams of the world might as well, you know, have been saying the same thing for a a decade about Iraq, Afghanistan, you name it. But there are others, you know, I think, you know, especially within Afghanistan who have uh, reasonable criticisms or concerns about, you know, the trajectory of the Taliban, what might happen to women's rights if they were to resume power. Like what kind of leverage do you think the U.S. or the international community will have to manage those concerns once U.S. or potentially NATO troops are out of there? So look, I I think we expected these concerns to be raised. We certainly didn't expect this decision to be 100% universally uh, sort of received with acclaim uh, by consensus. We knew there were people who had other views. But I think two things we came to realize uh, during the course of this process. One is that conditions-based really meant setting ourselves up with conditions that were unlikely to ever be met. So in other words, conditions-based basically meant an indefinite U.S. military presence in Afghanistan, which is, again, a a credible thing for somebody to argue, but it was uh, uh, President Biden's strong view that was not in the best interest of the United States. The other is that this notion that our troops gave us leverage uh, over the, the future of Afghanistan, over the negotiations, 
may have been true at one point, although I think it's it's dubious because we had 100,000 uh, troops on the order of that in Afghanistan and weren't able mm-hmm. to kind of produce the sort of diplomatic outcome that people want. We now have somewhere on the order of 2,500, uh, 3,000. So uh, that amount of, of quote unquote leverage uh, we assessed was not likely to, to be able to, to bring about the outcome that people desired. And in the end, he also just didn't really believe that our troop presence should be used in that way. In other words, should be used as a bargaining chip in what is essentially a a war between uh, two Afghan parties. So we decided to take that off the table in the diplomacy. We do think we have leverage over Afghanistan going forward. We can sanction them. We can withhold assistance uh, that we place on them. Afghanistan, I think, wants to not be a pariah state the way it was uh, in the 90s under the the Taliban and and before that uh, during its uh, long civil war. I think they want a modern economy. They want to be able to trade and engage uh, with the West. And we, to some extent, can control the extent to which that's possible for them. And so uh, we'll use that to try to preserve some of the gains that they made. Yeah. Yeah. One of my, my last sort of area of questions for you is, you know, there was this announcement last week that, that caused a little bit of confusion about uh, the sort of cap on refugee admissions. Initially, it seemed like the administration might keep in place uh, a cap from the, the Trump era of uh, 15,000. And then Jen Psaki clarified that, you know, that number will be uh, officially released on May 15th. I guess just like stepping back away from, you know, like the, the like confusion is just the question of what infrastructure needs to be in place to actually get that done, to move that uh, that number of people to the U.S. to help them get resettled, to make sure that you know it's a successful process. Because I know there's sort of been reporting and talk about how some of that infrastructure was dismantled by the Trump administration, uh, and, and I'm curious, like, what is required and what it'll take to get it all back in place? Because obviously, you know, you want um, people not just to come to the U.S. but to to be successfully um, set up to succeed here. Yeah. So look, I, I spent a lot of my career working on, on refugee issues inside the government and, and outside the government. And one of the things that I think is, is quite clear and that we realized uh, from the minute that we got here, although we had some, uh, I think, anticipation of this, is that the last administration really did spend four years doing everything possible to try to destroy the U.S. refugee admissions program. They transferred officers uh, who were involved in in processing refugees out of their jobs and into other areas. They slowed down uh, the process of of security clearances and vetting uh, for refugees, Uh, not because they uh, wanted to make it stronger, just because they wanted to, in a sense, uh, make it slower uh, so that people would move more slowly through the system and not get here as quickly. They set up a a refugee determination, it's called, presidential determination. That's not just the number of refugees that the U.S. will admit every year, which has gotten a lot of attention. They set it at 15,000, which is the lowest it's ever been in the history of the program. But they also uh, determined which countries and which regions those refugees Mm -hmm. could come from. And they picked places where there, frankly, are not refugees who are ready to travel to the United States. So under their uh, description, it would have been impossible even to get to this very unambitious Uh, level of 15,000 refugees because they picked places, uh, unlike uh, Africa, unlike the Middle East, uh, where there are refugees, places where there just weren't refugee populations to choose from. So we came in and and now have to rebuild this program, have to put resources and personnel back into the, the parts of our government that process refugees, have to make other improvements like allowing refugees to have uh, representation, lawyers or other personal represent, representatives in this process. And yes, we had to redo the regional allocation so that Africans and mm-hmm. Middle Easterners could travel here and we'll eventually have to uh, raise the cap as well. But right now we've only let in uh, thus far, most of it under the Trump administration's uh, policy, 2,000-ish, uh, maybe 3,000 almost refugees. So we're not anywhere near this cap of 15,000, uh, although I think we will be raising that uh, in the near term. 
Got it. And then is COVID slowing down this process? I mean, what what added hurdles does the pandemic add? It's a good point. So the the pandemic has slowed this uh, down in a number of ways. One, migration during the height of the pandemic uh, uh, decreased uh, a bit as people uh, stayed put a bit more uh, than they would have under normal circumstances. But second, uh, U.S. government officials who would normally be traveling to do refugee screening interviews in parts of the world where we don't have a permanent uh, presence in place to do that uh, were restricted from traveling because of uh, COVID protocols. So that stuff is just now ramping back up, and we expect we'll be able to process more refugees uh, with those uh, uh, people back on the road. Got it. So okay, so the travel you're talking about by these U.S. officials is part of the extreme vetting process, quote unquote, that 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 Trump would always demagogue. Yeah, I'm not sure we call it extreme vetting. I think we would call it suitable, appropriate, you know, security vetting. This is, by the way, the most right, heavily right. screened, heavily vetted uh, part of, of any of the immigrant population, right. the refugee population. So uh, while there is a lot of fear mongering about the risks uh, that refugees pose to the United States, the reality is, is quite different. The rate of any sort of uh, crime or violent incidents among refugees in the country is extremely low. The level of vetting and security screening they get is extremely high. And yes, uh, the people who do this, uh, they're they're called circuit rides. People from the Department of Homeland Security who go around the world and and do these screening interviews, that slowed down a lot under COVID and and we'll be picking it back up. Got it. Well, that makes total sense. Uh, John Feiner, thank you so much for joining the show. It's great to talk to you. uh, especially from this, whatever this new studio in EOB, I'm very impressed and uh, kind of jealous of of the new comms team over there. I'm just happy you invited me, so I got to see this place. So uh, and, and got out of my <laughs> my office for a, for a minute or two. Yeah, uh, how many uh, meals, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner have you not eaten at your desk since you took the job? I think if you don't count like peanuts and chips, uh, I would say under a handful. H- how's the mess food these days? I, the same high quality you remember. Okay, good, good. John, thanks again, man. Great talk to you and uh, keep up the good work and hope to talk to you soon. All right. Take care, Tommy. Thanks. Thanks again to John Finer for doing the show. uh, And we will talk to you guys next week. See you guys. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, Narm Elkonian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.